0: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only programme from RNZ Sport. I'm Bridget Tunnycliffe. This week, Shane Archbold describes what it means to be confirmed to ride in the iconic Tour de France for the first time. A New Zealander at the centre of the global fight against doping is at a loss to explain the IOC's decision to reject the recommendation of the IAAF to ban Russian athletes from competing in Rio. The New Zealand rower Eric Murray, talks about the final phase of preparation towards Rio. We talk to Southern Steel netball coach, Nolin Tarua, as she prepares for the business end of the AZ competition. And the All Blacks team selections offer plenty of intrigue. Three New Zealanders have so far been confirmed to ride in next month's Tour de France. Not long after the news that Timaru's Shane Archbold was picked to ride for the German bora Argon team, George Bennett of Nelson was confirmed for his Dutch lotto team. It will be a first for both. They joined a small group of New Zealand riders to take part in cycling's iconic event. Veteran Greg Henderson has also been confirmed in his Belgium lotto team. Barry Guy spoke with Archbold, the 2014 Commonwealth Games scratch race champion, and asked him how his Tour de France selection rates in his career.
1: Obviously, when I was a track rider, the pinnacle was the Olympics, so I took that box, and the pinnacle of road racing is the Tour de France. I mean, not just in the cycling, and in most sports, it's ranked in the top 10 or 20 hardest races you could possibly do. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a tough month, but... It's all exciting.
2: I suppose there were a number of cyclists in your team that were hoping to get in that squad for the Tour de France. What do you think uh, got you through?
1: Yeah, our team's uh, made up 21 riders, and obviously they only take nine. And our team, well, most other teams are 25 to 30 riders, but ours is a bit smaller because we're not actually at the World Tour level, so we have less riders and we don't do the Tour of Italy and Tour of Spain and races like that. So um, pretty much I I was always in with a chance at the start of the year but I just went about my thing and raced as per usual and then as the time got closer the chance got higher and then in the last sort of six to seven weeks I've really concentrated on trying to prove my case to be named in the Tour team and um, lose, a, lose a little bit of weight so I could uh, climb in the Alps a little bit easier. And, yeah, it's all paid off. I had a race uh, last week in France, and that was sort of the final uh, final selection race for me. So, yeah, it's all worked out pretty well.
2: I understand you'll be out one, uh, one of the lead-out riders for your team's uh, sprinters. What is it with New Zealanders? I, I know Julian Dean, Greg Henderson, they seem to do that sort of thing as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, they... Um, New Zealand normally breeds different types of cyclists normally tower athletes from the track like Julian, Greg Hayden and myself we all came from the track before making careers on the road so we have that um, ability to go fast for a short period of time so it's a matter of just um, converting that from the track of 4 minutes to 20 minutes to uh, being able to do it at the end of 5 hours of racing so yeah I mean Julian, at his time, and probably still is one of the best lead-out riders that, well, definitely New Zealand's ever seen and the world's ever seen, so just trying to follow in his footsteps and um, hopefully can do a good job for um, Myra's teammate, Sam Bennett, but unfortunately for us, we've only got the two of us, well, he's only got one lead-out rider and myself, and we're coming up against some of the bigger teams in the world where they have of their nine Tour de France riders, sort of five of them are lead out one sprinter and three climbers. Our team's made up of seven climbers, me and Sam, so it makes it a bit more difficult, but it's all part of the fun.
2: Uh, 27 years old, you've been on the road for a couple of years after success on the track. I mean, did you think, I've got to get onto the road, or is 27, you know, it's obviously not too old?
1: In road cycling, 27, 26, 29 sort of is your pinnacle. Obviously, a lot of riders have three or four, five years experience before they get to 27, so I'm lacking a bit of experience, but I'm definitely still in my prime in terms of road racing. Like to be able to withstand five or six hours a day for 21 days in a row, it doesn't, uh, not too many young people can do that, so. At the Tour de France, I'll still be reasonably young compared to some of the riders, but um, these days we've got Australians and a lot of Europeans turning professional at 20 or 21 after only racing one or two years in the younger ranks. So obviously, slow I was a slow or late bloomer on the road, so to speak, but I had a lot of track commitments that I enjoyed at the time, and um, I wouldn't change that for anything. It was just very grateful to get the road contract to be able to keep stepping forward in the world of cycling
2: what's going to be the most difficult part do you think i mean it's uh, what three weeks um, you know you've got to get up plenty of hills all that sort of thing have you thought about what the most challenging part's going to be
1: i've talked to a few riders obviously over the years about the tour de france and firstly the biggest the biggest hurdle for everyone is getting through the first week it's the biggest race in the world, the roads are full of spectators, everyone wants to prove their hand and get a result, so that means generally a lot of nervousness within the peloton and a lot of crashes. So after sort of six or seven days, if you've got through that reasonably unscathed, that's when um, the racing settles down and the, the GC riders, the overall contenders, start to put up their hands and that's when the mountains start. And that's probably my biggest thing, I'll thrive the first week all the nervousness and speed and the bunch sprints and then as the mountains start to uh, come I'll start to get weary because my longest race so far is only eight days so sort of anything after that is going to be a new experience for me and especially once I think we spend five days in the uh, Pyrenees first a couple of transition days and then five or six in the Alps so it's a lot of climbing but um, I'll be taking it one day at a time I'll look at look at the race manual only one day at a time because if I get too far ahead I'll just get confused and carried away so it's easier just get through day one and then find out what's in store for day two.
0: That's Barry Guy speaking to Shane Archbold who has been picked to ride in his first Tour de France. The International Olympic Committee has failed athletics by not supporting the recommendation from its international governing body to ban Russian athletes from competing in Rio, says a New Zealander at the centre of the global fight against doping. The Director-General of WADA, David Hellman, is stunned the IOC rejected the recommendation of the IAAF. Instead, the ISC's decided track and field competitors from Russia must now pass extra-independent doping tests if they want to compete under the Russian flag. Hellman told RNZ Sports Editor Stephen Hewson that's left him at a loss.
3: They've just not supported the International Athletics Federation in the way they said they were. I just don't get that.
4: Well, I suppose what it also means is that, I mean, the IAAF recommended that Russian athletes don't compete as Russians per se, but the IOC's gone round and, and said they will be, so the Russian flag will be flying in Rio. The prospect of it not flying would have seemed to have had a greater impact than, than what the IOC's done.
3: The only Russian athletes who would not be competing under the Russian flag would be those in track and field. And that is because of the information that's been made available. We, we have an inquiry going at the moment, Stephen, which might show that there are other sports involved. Uh, we just don't know, uh, but we do know that the director of the laboratory in, in Russia, or the former director, who's also escaped from his country, uh, is talking and telling us how the state effectively sponsored a doping program uh, in Russia. Now, what we don't know is what the inquiry will reveal. Who, who has been the beneficiaries of that? How have they been beneficiaries and in what sports are they? are they from? So there's more to come Uh, and I think uh, the IOC may uh, need to reflect on uh, its decision in due course.
4: When you look at these Rio Olympics coming up, how many medal winners do you believe are going to be doped?
3: Uh, That's a question I just can't answer. I I, I think you've got to make sure that the doping program, the anti-doping program which is run by the IOC at these events is is the best it could possibly be Uh, and you have to be aware that uh, the storage of the samples is a continuing deterrent, we hope, because your sample can be analysed anything up to 10 years later and, and you can be found out.
4: You must have an idea, though, or thoughts around that, given, like you say, that the samples are stored, so what we've seen emerge from Beijing and working possibly back with, with that, you, you must have a, a gut instinct on what we're watching and how much of it you think is, is real or, or doped.
3: No, I'd, look, I answer that question to many, Stephen. I just say, look, I've got a healthy deg- degree of practical cynicism. And, and I think uh, that is bred not from what I've done in my job. That's bred from years of reading things and, and learning about what people do to cheat and take shortcuts, not just in sport, but in other aspects of our society.
4: Maybe if I phrase it another way, then, how successful do you think or what, success rate will you have of catching dope cheats
3: at these games? There's been a very healthy pre-games testing programme. There has been more and more emphasis on looking at athletes that are going who have competed in events in the past, whether they be uh, Olympic Games or World Championships and their samples are stored, should they be retested now? Uh, That's still ongoing. Uh, I think there will be a lot that is done. That still avoids my answer to your question because I can't vouch for the athletes who are going there. I I can point you in the direction of research projects which say to us, you know, would you go to an Olympic Games uh, and cheat because you're sure of getting a gold medal, but you're probably going to die before you're 25? And a high percentage of bashes say, yes, they will. So you've you've, you've got to balance that sort of uh, information, that knowledge you've got from research against against your hopes.
4: So when you sit and watch the Rio Games, or will you even sit and watch the Rio Games, has your cynicism got to the point where you can no longer watch?
3: No, Stephen, look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm uh, an avid sport um, person, and I always will be. I, I do well f- Do uh, watch with a healthy degree of cynicism, and I, I don't think I'll ever lose that. Um, I, I find that a little bit difficult. I think there are some sports uh, better than others that I can watch with perhaps a, a less uh, bigger dose of, of that cynicism, but but the issue really will be, um, you watch something, and, and I think m- many of the people who be listening to this will, will share it. You watch it and you say, what? How did that happen? Um, and if you do that, then, then, then you've got to sit back and say, well, did it happen because, or did it happen because this is, this is an athlete who's just uh, physically extraordinary? And, and that's the sort of balance of, the, of your decision-making uh, process that I think anyone has to take. Um, and I'm sitting in a person who says there is a heck of a lot that, that athletes of the world can do through proper, good training, nutrition, uh, coaching and so on. Uh, you don't need to take chemical stuff to improve. You can do it by hard work and, and I'd like to see people who have done it by hard work succeed.
0: That's the Director-General of WADA, David Hellman, talking to Stephen Hewson. And after thirteen years with Wada based in Montreal, Hellman is stepping down from his role next week and returning to New Zealand. You're listening to extra time I'm Bridget Honeycliffe. The New Zealand rower Eric Murray says whoever times their run into the Olympics with the way they train and the way they peak will be most successful. The New Zealand rowers sent a stern warning to their rivals six weeks out from Rio by bagging ten medals from ten finals on the last day of racing at the World Cup in Poland last weekend. Most of the world's top rowers gathered in Lake Malta for what was the final chance for crews to test each other before the Olympic Games. All ten New Zealand boats that will compete in Rio claimed medals, five gold, three silver and two bronze. There were no surprises in the men's pair as Hamish Bond and Eric Murray asserted their dominance yet again winning gold. Eric Murray told me they are clear what the benchmark is.
5: Now we know after being in Lucerne, after being here in Poland, we know the crews that are going to turn up on the start line. You know, We know the ones that are going to be there that are going to come out and try and, and win these medals and obviously going to try and win the event. And now it's for us really to know what benchmark we've been looking at and try and make that go even further. And so for us now, we've just got to knuckle down, make sure that that's where we're aiming, and that's how fast we're going to go so that we can turn into Rio, knowing we're going as fast as possible, um, and ultimately go out there and try and take that gold medal. Uh,
0: Robbie Manson and Chris Harris did well to go on better than the World Rowing Cup number two, and they did amazingly well to hunt down the British duo. I mean, how much confidence does that give them?
5: Yeah, there's there's crews in the New Zealand team that have been following some of the top competitors in their field, Um, and I think the greatest thing was that people were able to go out there and see what people are capable of. I think you've really got to analyse it and look and say, OK, this is the third World Cup. They've had won the European Championships, then the number two, then the number three. Uh, did people peak for this? You know, Are they looking to try and show some form at this regatta and then try and take that into Rio? Or were they trying to train through this, which is what I think most of the New Zealand crews have done, um, and take that into the Rio Olympics? Um, and I think the, the men's double we have really showed their form. You know, we've had some some great results from not only them, but from the whole team. You know, the women's eight did really well. The men's eight, a little bit off the speed, but still on the podium. So there's a lot to be gained. Um, I think that's the one thing is we've got to look at what this actually means. You know, does this mean that what happens here happens at the Olympics? I don't think so. I think in a, in a few events, you could argue that, yes, this is possibly what could happen, um, but I think in, in other ways, it's really just a wake-up call for people to say, this is where you're at, now what are you going to do to gain that extra second or two that is going to count at the end of the day, and I think in the next six weeks, it's really who can time their run into the Olympics in the way that they train, in the way that they peak, is really going to be the way that the people are going to uh, come away with the medals um, when the Olympic regatta turns out.
0: So I guess that would apply to someone like Emma Twigg who just missed out today. Do you think she absolutely has enough time to make up that distance on Kimberly Brennan?
5: Yeah, I don't know. Like I haven't, I haven't spoken to Emma after a race. Um, you know, we were lucky enough to be here sitting on the bank watching it. That's the one thing. You know, Emma's been over here. She had to qualify, so of course she had to make sure that she was in the form to be able to qualify for the regatta and then obviously come to this and she's been obviously in a, in a heavy training period, whereas Kim Brennan she's been in a period where the Olympics is her, it's her peak, you know, she's been working towards the Olympics, so this regatta is just another stepping stone in that process for her. So of course Emma's in on one side, Kim's in the other, um, you know, same with Mahe, you know, Mahe did really well against uh, Damier and and a few of the other guys. There's people that are in their stage of trying to qualify for the Olympic regatta, and then there's other people that this is the, just the stage in their process coming through. So we don't really know. You know, it's it's a, I wouldn't say a lottery, but there's there's so much that goes on. You know, five weeks. It doesn't sound like much, but there's so much that can go on between now and then. You know, there's speed work that that can happen. There's uh, turning up to the regatta and your boat not being set up properly there's you know unforeseen circumstances you know like we look back to jeez two thousand and eight to Mahe he got sick in two thousand and eight in Beijing. There's things like that can happen, Um, and it's really about now turning and making sure that everything that's in your power that you can control are going to be in your hands so you can turn up to this regatta knowing that, yep, cool, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to race, and as long as everything is right, we can come away with the best possible scenario.
0: Mahi Drysdale, he's been there, done this, he's been doing this for many years now. Do you still see on him the same excitement that he brought to it, say, eight, ten years ago? Is he still that, that got that passion?
5: Yeah, I think the passion's there for everybody. I know that every time the New Zealand crew goes out there on the race, we're there to win. You know, we don't just go out there to settle for second or third, we go out there to win. We don't just go out there to try and qualify to get those top three places. Every time there's someone on the water, they go out there to win. And that's what we've seen through the progression rounds. Uh, you know, most of the New Zealand crews are out on top, they're winning their progression rounds and then they're taking it into the final and then getting some medals. So I think that's the way that we work. We're not a country that sits back and says, we're just going to do enough to get to where we want to go. And I know, you know, I know Mahe and Emma are the same. They want to go there and they want to win. Um, And then when it comes to final time, it's a different story altogether. So now it's really just a matter of fact of sitting back and going, right, we've got three races left in this Olympic cycle. We've got a heat semi and a final ready to go, ready for the medals. And how am I going to attack that? And that's what you've got to think of from now on.
0: That's New Zealand rower Eric Murray. You're listening to Extra Time. I'm Bridget Honeycliffe. The Southern Steel have a shot at making history and becoming the first New Zealand side to host an ANZ Netball Grand Final. With two games remaining in the regular season, the Steel are already guaranteed to host the New Zealand Conference Final, courtesy of being runaway leaders on the local ladder. They also have a chance of ending the regular season with the most points across New Zealand and Australia, which would put them in a prime position to host the Grand Final. Steel coach Nolan Taro says she puts the team under high-intensity situations in training, which are designed to be harder than the actual games. She told me that's one of the ingredients to her team's success this year.
6: One of the things is for us to work um, consistently under pressure um, and not only that, to be able to deliver. Um, at whether on defence or attack and you know we've, we've been doing that for the whole season and we've got to a stage where um, the content is still the same but our repetitions are less. Um, the hope of that is that when we actually do get out and play on court that we've gone through all the pressure situations that we could possibly think of um, and there's a lot of repetition training that we are doing so we're doing exactly the same thing week in, week out um, and, you know, really the the philosophy is when we do play that we actually enjoy it. We don't need to think about anything and just enjoy the moment of getting the opportunity to be better and that seems to work for us really well and um, that's what we've been tracking over the whole season.
0: Gina Crampton's having a great season. Do you think she's well and truly ready for a Silver Ferns opportunity?
6: Oh, definitely. Gina Crampton is a a natural wing attack her ability and her vision in the circle her ability when she has ball in hand is amazing and uh, basically i don't see anybody in the ilk that she's currently playing at the moment i believe she's a sitter for a wing attack position in the silver ferns um she's definitely ready um, and her consistency of performance week in week out has also will also support her selection there. So um, Silver Ferns is definitely you know where she will be next.
0: Do you find it interesting that over in Australia they are seriously considering introducing two point shots into their new domestic competition next year? They've gone as far as setting up a working group.
6: Yes, I've, I've heard the rumours about the two-point shots. Um, we have, over the last couple of years, have also trialled it with ANZ, and um, in I think it might have been January of, or February of this year, we also trialled it as part of our pre-season. Um, you know, it, it changes the game hugely um, as to the traditional game or what we currently play, and unless you've got two-point specialists, um, such as the likes of a Maria um, or Erin Bell it can become quite boring because there's quite a few earballs. balls. So, um, you know, they are going to decide as to how they want their game to play. Um, it'd be interesting what that does for the Diamonds and also their international game when they do come back. Um, I can't see it would be a positive move um, overall for them.
0: I was going to ask you just that. If they did go down that track, their top players would be playing far less of the traditional game. So when they meet New Zealand, for example, they might be a bit behind the eight ball. Yeah, I
6: mean, it's going to change somewhere up in the line, I think, if they do take that. Um, I don't believe, you know, if it's because it's to offer a different type of game that's only going to be for Australians. Um, Maybe that's the reason why they're doing it that way, but um, through experience of what I've seen, unless you have those two pointers, it can become very monotonous and and not a good spectacle game. So, you know, obviously the offset to that is when they do come and play international, what that is going to be a difference, and I'm not too sure if that's going to put them into um, a place of strength or actually weaken them, so only time will tell on that.
0: I guess the other thing that could potentially happen is if they break rank and do go down that track and if it takes off over there, the rest of the netball world may feel compelled to follow suit.
6: Um, I I hope uh, Australia are not going that way and using probably their um, control, I suppose, over the international netball. Um, You know, a lot of other countries don't have that resource or probably aren't in the position to change the game in their own countries. And I feel both New Zealand and Australia have to protect the game as it is at the moment. I think you know, there'll be a lot of discussions that need to be had not only by Australia and New Zealand but all the countries that play the sport if we want to go that way and I don't think it's a positive for the traditional style that we're currently playing which is actually a, a
0: great game. The Steel coach Nolling Taru, The Steel meet the Melbourne Vixens and New South Wales Swifts in their final regular season games. Several debutants, a surprise starter at centre and some hometown heroes highlight the All Blacks team for this weekend's third test against Wales in Dunedin. The All Blacks have already wrapped up the three test series 2-0, though the team selections mean there is still plenty of intrigue in the match. Rugby reporter Joe Porter reports.
7: Coach Steve Hansen has made 12 changes for the dead rubber in Dunedin, though his most left field selection appears to be at centre. With first-choice Malakai Fekitoa still recovering from a head clash, George Moala has been preferred to setter Valu to partner Ryan Crotty in the midfield. Moala hasn't played for the All Blacks since the test against Samoa last July and was only called into the squad as injury cover.
8: 100% fit Mawala probably would have played, um, but he's not, so that gave us opportunity to say, right oh, we've seen a wee bit of setter in the last couple of weeks, let's have a look at George.
7: The Highlanders' loose forwards Elliot Dixon and Liam Squire are set to make their all-black debuts in front of their home crowd. Dixon will start at blindside in place of Jerome Kainor, with Squire on the bench in place of Ardy Savea. Hansen says the debutants have impressed in training.
8: Along with Ardy, those three boys have come in and done everything with us of them, and uh, you know, Ardy's played particularly well, and we now know what he can give us, but Again, with Elliot, uh, his ability to play six and seven, Liam's ability to play six and eight, and and if they can play to the high quality that we're expecting them to be able to play it, then you know it all bodes well for us.
7: The other possible new cap is front rower Offer Tounga Fasi, who's on the bench for Saturday's match. His fellow Blues prop Charlie Fomuina gets a rare start, with Owen Franks getting a rest. Hansen says to Fasi needs to be tested on the international stage.
8: We need to find out if he can scrum at this level, he can play at this level, uh, seems to be going well, at, very well at, again at training and, and uh, uh, it also gives us an opportunity to see uh, if something was to go wrong with OE, can Charlie do the job for us that he's not only off the bench but by starting and, and they are two different roles.
7: Wing Julian Saver is back for Waisake Naholo with Ben Smith on the right wing and Israel Dagg at full back. Naholo, who had a heavy workload in the first two tests, drops to the reserves. First five Bowden Barrett starts in Aaron Cruden's absence with Lima Sopowanger on the bench. Hansen says the new players have earned their shot, and with the series wrapped up, now was the time to bring in some fresh blood.
8: It's a risk and reward. The series has been won, uh, but at the same time we need to to win this next test match. And then on the other hand, we need to find out about you know these new players who have been training really well, so, and we just felt the the risks were minimal and the rewards were going to be fantastic for us later in the season
7: and even beyond that. The All Blacks have an unassailable 2-0 series lead heading into the third and final test. For Extra Time, Joe Porter.
0: That's the show for this week. Remember, you can contact us at sport at radioNZ.co.nz and you can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. We'll be back next week with another edition of Extra Time. Bye for now.